This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music-based podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis, and after spending some 30 years in the music industry and working with some of the world's leading artists, I've finally been paroled, adopted by Pantheon and sharing some amazing stories from some equally amazing people. Moments That Rock is that moment where artists and music industry insiders share moments that rocked their world. And today's guest is one Andrew Melcher from the UK, who's a bit of a whiz kid tech boy. He'll introduce himself, like most people do on the show, and then we'll have Bill DeYoung coming back with some more of his amazing moments. But first of all, Mr Andrew Melcher. Hi, I'm Andrew Melchior. I'm, I'm a digital producer. I've been working in uh, digital technologies for 25 years, um, starting off with uh, Early Doors Internet and the Guardian Media Group in Manchester, and working through to Virgin EMI in the early noughties, working with the likes of uh, David Bowie, um, and then moving through to artists including Massive Attack and Bjork, um, and uh, on innovations in virtual reality, spatial audio, and uh, all kinds of interesting immersive installations. I first came across the idea of uh, Tony Michaelides uh, uh, when he was under his moniker Tony the Greek and Tony the Greek uh, ran a radio show in Manchester when I was a teenager and um, he used to play really cool records from very interesting artists and um, uh, the thing that got me interested in what he was playing at the time was his, uh, his interest in a band called the Chameleons who I was uh, very interested in as a, a young teenager um, and I remember him playing those and then he went off and did some really remarkable things like playing the Stone Roses for the first time who were also a big uh, hit for me um, when I was at college um, and I had a song called Sally Cinnamon and I think Tony won the record for being the first in the UK to ever play her own uh, Stone Roses song and that song specifically which was the 
thing that really moved the dial for them. Um, anyway, years went by, and um, interestingly, I ended up playing with Mark Burgess, um, uh, the Chameleons, and clear line of, uh, of uh, connectivity between Tony playing it when I was 13 and me, bizarrely, ended up playing in a band with him when I was in my 20s. Um, anyway, uh, next time I came across Tony was um, at, uh, I think it was uh, the Hacienda nightclub, and um, I used to see him in there. He was quite distinct. He had, um, uh, he used to wear like a paperboy, 1930s paperboy cap. Um, and uh, he'd lurk around the corners of the Hacienda with people like um, Tony Wilson. Um, I'm not sure I saw him there with New Order. That's probably a cultural memory I'd like to have, but I don't think I saw him there with them. But um, anyway, I was aware of Tony at that time being on the scene, and I was very young and uh, probably underage and in the Hacienda dancing to people like the Happy Mondays and um, 808 State. The next time I saw Tony, interestingly, zooming fast forward again, was um, at the boardwalk. And I was, at this point, I was playing in bands and I saw him at the boardwalk. So I used to be in an aspirational couple of little guitar and keyboard bands, uh, one of whom managed to get a publishing deal with a company called BMG Publishing. And my manager had signed the last band, Tony Wilson's Factory Records label. And um, he, Tony uh, Michael Edes and his company, um, TMP, uh, ended up doing the press <laughs> on my first EP. Uh, and... Uh, when I was 19. So, so it's been an interesting ride. Then fast forward nearly 15, 20 years, and I ended up meeting him because of a company called Magic Leap and a film about augmented reality, which was not what I was expecting, I have to say, from, from Tony the Greek. Anyway, so I caught back up with Tony, and it turned out that in the interim periods of me seeing him around, he'd also ended up working, I mean, I didn't realise who he'd worked with in the past, but it, people like you 2 and the police, Peter Gabriel, David Bowie, um, I know, and just like a litany of, of artists who all became super relevant to me, including Depeche Mode, Massive Attack, and New Order. Turns out Tony meets this guy, uh, Roni Abovitz, who is setting up a recording studio and arbitrarily meets Tony, and Tony ends up working with Roni. Roni's redefining uh, media with, with his AR glasses uh, that he wants to do, which basically project a mixed reality message to your brain using fancy optics and uh, lots of skill in the uh, retina department. And uh, he's developing a team and the team is doing music uh, and, and trying to understand content for this new medium. Uh, we, we have a chat and I watched this film and the film actually, I have to say, changed my life because I ended up with Tony um, and uh, Tony's uh, good friend and uh, uh, interestingly, my old boss at Virgin, Ray Cooper. Um, and we ended up running around uh, with some really amazing artists and managers trying to figure out how to record and, and uh, instigate these new mixed reality medium interactions, which was great. I've been invited on this podcast uh, uh, to share moments that rock. And, uh, and that's interesting because I've done a few things and I, I realized uh, arbitrarily I've, I've managed to stand either next to or to the side of some very interesting people in my life. And also I've had some fairly profound um, inspirational moments as well. And I think one of the, the first things I, I really uh, remember that moved the dial for me uh, personally, bizarrely, uh, was this opportunity to meet Mark Burgess, who was a lead singer of a band called The Chameleons. And um, I was uh, about 17, 18 years old. And um, five years prior to that, in my very formative years, I'd been listening to a band called The Chameleons, which happened to be up the road from where I lived in Middleton. And the, and, and the thought of this band from Middleton uh, making these records that I ended up going to pick the records and buying. Uh, I think Script of the Bridge, uh, What Does Anything Mean Basically, and Strange Times are the big ones. And, um, and um, 
I, re I really remember Mark being around and the band being around and thinking, oh, that's interesting because somebody just up the road from where I live in this really boring town, Whitefield, <laughs> near Bury in North Manchester, that's not really doing anything. It's very Luke Skywalk, you know, if there's a centre of the universe, it felt like the place furthest from. And um, the, the thought that he was doing that was comforting because it, um, it unveiled an opportunity to do things with music that could lead to an excitement of the senses and to be able to stir people with sound. And, and I, so I was very uh, interested, um, ironically, to meet him through the medium of the internet. I was very early doors on the internet. I was at Manchester University uh, and the arts department at Manchester University had computers and the computers, interestingly, were connected to the internet. And this is before the World Wide Web. This is when the internet's all tested. And I thought of you, you went to Manchester University and you got an email address and everybody was like, what's an email address? And you had the Ampersand with the dots and the dot co and all this sort of stuff. And I, um, and I got an email address and then I got the internet uh, with these really early Apple computers, these LCs and quadras. Um, Anyway, I was so fascinated by it, I basically saved up my pennies and got a computer. I got an Apple and it uh, uh, cost an arm and a leg. And I think I might have blown substantial some of my student grant on some of it. And um, I got online with it. And at the time, you could buy internet by the minute um, through things like Demon Internet, which was one of the very early internet service providers. But it was a very exotic beast and uh, not everybody at all was doing it. So I had to get a modem. I got on the internet 56K. And then Apple released this thing called eWorld. eWorld was actually Apple's first uh, gambit into things like an AOL. So it was a virtual world. And there's a lot of talk at the moment about metaverses and the meta version of our world. Well, interestingly, the, one of the first metaverse things I saw was Apple's eWorld. And you got you had to subscribe, you paid some shekels to, to Steve Jobs, and you got sent some uh, three and a half inch floppy disks with a, a logo on. You stuck them into your Apple Mac and you made an account, dialed up and you made an account with eWorld, email address, password. And then it took your credit card details as well, and it would charge you. And the idea was you, you were dialed into this virtual world, and there was a town square, and a library, and a meeting place, and a, and a market. And, a, and, a, and, and in the library, they had news groups as well, so you could get onto the internet. First real use of the internet was news groups, newsletters, Usenet. And uh, they were called alt, and it was at alt dot, whatever the subject was. And then you could go and find things like photos or uh, uh, 3D uh, designs or you know newspaper articles or whatever. So it was a great way to get on that. And so I was nerding out, heavily nerding out in this shared community where you went online and people from around the world would be in the meeting space, but they were writing and they were writing, they couldn't speak. It wasn't fast enough for audio, there was no video. So you would just have literally a window with names of users on eWorld and different colors and you would write. And as you typed, you could see whatever everyone else was typing, like instant messaging, well ahead of the game. At one point, I meet this guy called Mark <laughs> on eWorld. And so by the wonders of the internet, I'm in Whitefield on an Apple Mac, on <laughs> going to the World Wide Web via eWorld. Mark uh, is over in Haywood <laughs> um, on, an, on his Apple Mac, going on eWorld to the World Wide Web, and he's meeting Andrew, who's only living about five miles away. And, uh, and so I meet Mark Burgess, who was actually a hero of mine. So I had a bit of a slightly gushing, embarrassing moment of like, oh my God, you're Mark Burgess. And I was like, oh, you're cool. You're Mark Burgess. And I'm, you know, and because um, I actually wrote in fan mail, I was, I was such a fan. I actually wrote, and he actually, to, to his credit, he actually wrote back to me when I was 13, you know, full of the bleeding angst of a 13 year old. Anyway, we became friends over eWorld. 
and uh, uh, bizarre. And then it turned out he was going on tour with a guy called Eve Altana, who's this loony from a band called Wonky Alice in Manchester. Yeah, this mad Corsican, a lovely man. And um, and they needed a keyboard player. <laughs> and you couldn't make it up because I was a keyboard player and I was 18 years old and Mark Burgess, who I really liked, was like going, oh, would you like to be a keyboard player in my band? So there I was. So that's a moment that rocked because I went from bizarrely left field association to Mark Burgess, which was via the internet. The very first real thing that connected me in the wired world was a connection to this hero of mine who I ended up meeting bizarrely and going and playing with. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history because a lot of things that happened with him also joined a really good friend of mine, Paul Keogh, to now playing with Peter Hook, who happens to be the founder of one of the co-founders of Joy Division New Order. And this all happened through Mark, which all happened through eWorld. My, my first moment that really rocked me was meeting Mark Burgess via eWorld. There you have it. Stories from Andrew Melchior. And he'll be back in a few more weeks with uh, the rest of his uh, moments that rock. Meanwhile, we'll take a short break and then we'll be back with Bill DeYoung, who's got some other great stories for you to tell. You're listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michaelidis, our part of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
You heard Andrew Melchior before the break, and now we're going to go to Mr. Bill de Young, who you heard talking about Tom Petty in uh, a few weeks ago. Bill is the man to tell you about Bill. Hi, my name is Bill de Young. I'm from St. Petersburg, Florida. I have spent uh, the better part of 40 years as a journalist at uh, several newspapers. Remember those? There used to be newspapers. Uh, in Florida, and I, I was the arts editor for an alt-weekly in Savannah, Georgia for a number of years. But I started as a music journalist just because I was a guy who liked bands and because I didn't want to get a real job. I started writing about music. So to date now, as an old veteran, if you will, I have um, several several books that I've written, and several of them are, are compilations of, of stuff that I've written. One is called I need to know the lost music interviews. It's a collection of, of pieces that I did with sort of, sort of famous people over the years, uh, mostly for a magazine called Goldmine, which used to be good, isn't anymore. And um, a lot of them came from newspaper years. And uh, generally what would happen with those stories is um, I would do lengthy interviews with people like Neil Young or with Tom Petty, or uh, I, I spoke with George Martin, the Beatles producer, still one of my favorite interviews I ever did. I just use a little of it for a newspaper story or for the piece in Goldmine, but I kept the tapes. And so this book is called The Lost Music Interviews because I went back and transcribed the whole thing. And so that's um, that's one of the books I have. And I also wrote a book called Skyway, The True Story of Tampa Bay's Signature Bridge and the Man Who Brought It Down, which is the actual true story, really, of uh, the, the terrible uh, collapse of the, the Sunshine Skyway Bridge over Tampa Bay in 1980. I wrote a biography of a great Florida-born record producer named Phil Gernhardt, who uh, produced Stay by Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs. He co-wrote and produced Snoopy versus the Red Baron by the Royal Guardsmen. And he discovered and produced uh, the Bellamy Brothers and Jim Stafford and Lobo, all of, all of which came from Florida. He also produced Abraham Martin and John by Dion, which was written in a little bungalow here in St. Petersburg, by the way, by a guy called Dick Holler. Um, and Phil went on to some amazing things at, uh, in Nashville, in L.A., in the music business. And uh, he died a very tragic death in 2008. So that is just a story of a great music pioneer from Florida. Most recently, I've been I have two books, both of which are compilations, Vintage St. Pete, Volume 1 and Volume 2, which are collections of stories about a sort of an alt history of the area where I was born and where I've now been living again for about eight years. So those are out now. So that's essentially my shtick. Who am I? I'm a Beatles fan. And everything else came later, um, which leads me to a moment that rocked my world, which is something that my friend Tony here has asked me to talk about um, in 1990 when uh, Paul McCartney went back on tour again, 89 and 90, the tour finally came around to Tampa, which is close to where I, I lived in Gainesville at the time, but we're all in Florida. It was a few hours away and it was the closest gig. For some reason, I don't remember how uh, the tour publicist liked me. I was just some schmo from the middle of Florida, but she said, would you like to come to the show in the afternoon and interview Paul Wickens, who is Paul McCartney's keyboard player. He still is, you know, a lot of them are gone now, but Wicks is still there. Yeah, I'd like to do that. So I came down to Florida. The point of this story is that I met McCartney. I was introduced to him by a fellow journalist who happened to be there. 
and uh, we shook hands and we chatted for a while. And he's very engaging. He knows how to get to you. You know, he's met millions of people. So we talked for five or 10 minutes, just the two of us. He was asking me questions about myself. He was asking me questions about Gainesville. I was trying to not be an idiot. Uh, I don't know that I succeeded. But the, the point is that it was this incredible full circle moment for me. Just some kid from St. Pete who had idolized the Beatles. And I still know all of those records like the back of my hand, as they say. And it still means a great deal to me. And that's pretty much all I read about for years. I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to understand how the Beatles worked. And, and it's a beautiful story. Here I am standing in some faceless room underneath Tampa Stadium, which is now called Raymond James Stadium. Don't get me started. And we're, we're standing there eye to eye and chatting like we're, uh, we're old pals. It, was, it, it wasn't that brief, wasn't that long, um, but the irony was not lost on me that I had come all this way and I, and I had made this happen. I think that was the first moment in my career, quote unquote, that I felt like I'd accomplished something. Like this is kind of why I started doing this to get to this point. And then he went off to do an interview with someone else. Uh, I went off to do the interview with Wix. When I came back out, uh, he was nowhere around, but Linda was there. And I had a nice chat with Linda and um, I had a camera with me and her assistant took a photograph of the two of us, which I can't find. So if anybody out there has it, please let me know. You can reach me through, uh, through Tony. You got that picture of me and Linda McCartney because she's gone now and I haven't seen it in years. You talked about Paul McCartney. I mean, these people aren't going to be around forever. Do you feel that you appreciate just telling that story now than even the time you met him? Well, I think that that I'm sure it mattered a lot more to me than it did to him at the time. But I've got a great memory there. And, uh, you know, I saw George Harrison on on the 74 tour of the States. I've interviewed Ringo a couple of times. I've interviewed Yoko a couple of times, too, which for some people counts, for some it doesn't. And uh, oh my God! And I, I spoke with Derek Taylor before he passed. I've done lots of stuff with Peter Asher. I interviewed Michael Lindsay Hogg, you know, who did the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, and of course, Let It Be. Um, so it, it's all been a matter of kind of asking. You know, that's why my book is called I Need to Know. It really is a matter of like, especially with the sort of Beatles circle, that it was magic to me. And, and I like the idea, to get back to your point, I like the idea that it's out there in perpetuity, if that's the word, for anybody to, oh, well, what about this? You know, you brought up the George Martin interview. Well, I guess I brought it up. Um, I spoke to, to uh, Mr. Martin. It was 92 or 93. I can't remember. Uh, somebody from EMI set it up. I, I, again, don't remember how I got so lucky, but and he was in the UK. He was on the phone. And... It was the, probably the only time in all these years, still to date, that I wrote everything down first. You know, you, sometimes you'll make some notes and say age or, you know, the birds or something, you know, to, to sort of, but this time, you know, to give you a hint of what to ask about, this time I, wa- I knew I'd have one shot at this and I wanted it to be very specific. So I, I asked him, I think, things that he didn't get asked all the time. I asked him, uh, I said, you know, around Hard Day's Nighttime, a lot of those records have a really heavy piano in them. That was a, fr- and, and he got, got in this long conversation about 
piano and how um, in the beginning they couldn't play piano at all and that John by the end still couldn't do anything better than triplets on the piano, but Paul turned into a great piano player. But what he said was, I realized that since these are guys playing the guitar, I have to learn what the chords are on the guitar so I can translate that to piano to do these arrangements. And he talked about how he incorporated it into the sound, into the arrangements, and it was very, very um, interesting. And I, and I think he liked that idea that I wasn't sort of saying, well, what was that first audition like with Brian Epstein, you know? Yeah. Okay, my favorite thing, and I still, this has been quoted and misquoted in several other people's books over the years. Pete Doggett, love you, man, but you really need to give me credit for this. Um, I, I said to George Martin, you have said that you would have liked to have kept the White Album down to a single album rather than all those 30 songs. And he, and he said, yeah. And I said, well, what would you have cut out? And he paused for a minute and he says, well, I, I haven't got the list in front of me. Uh, he said, was Bungalow Bill on that album? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And I said, and, you know, Wild Honey Pie, and, and why don't we do it in the road, and Birthday, never never my favorite song. He, goes, he says, Birthday. Oh, there you go. He said, these were songs that were not, I guess you would call, front rank. He said, I, I, I for a lot of other bands, th these would have been front rank songs, but these were my boys greatest in the world and that's how i saw it and i thought we should it wouldn't we not that we wouldn't work on those other songs but i thought we should just focus on the best of what we had and made a really good single album but they didn't feel that way and by then they were the boss and you know he couldn't tell them what to do you know it was 68 already so those those comments i think it was the only person he's gone now i think i was the only person who ever asked him that and so it, that circulates a lot I asked him, uh, you know, about he was working with McCartney the day that John Lennon died. We talked a lot about that. And, and um, again, it turns up all the time, you know, uncredited. Uh, I don't need the credit. It'd be nice if there's a little reference in the back that that's where it came from. Because, folks, that interview is in I Need to Know the Lost Interviews. And st it's still a high watermark for me, personally. Bill DeYoung reciting Beatles stories, meeting McCartney, Linda McCartney, George Martin, and he's not done yet. Yeah, Brian died in 67. And I think certainly by the time of uh, Robert Soul, Brian probably wasn't calling a lot of the shots anymore anyway. I mean, if you read about it, uh, I, I, you know, I, once they stopped touring the next year, his influence over them kind of went down and down and down, and that led to this depression that he was in and... Uh, He's taking a lot of drugs, and we know that it finally, finally offed him. So yeah, by then it was just it was Apple. It was them. This is what we're doing, and if you don't like it, you can leave, kind of thing. Well, looking back at everything, you interviewed um, a lot of people because you talk about being a music journalist. I mean, obviously you're broader now than just a music journalist. You've yeah, and then I always sort of, I always sort of was, but that's you know I started back here in St. Petersburg. I was uh, I was seventeen. And I had a job in the newspaper office, you know, kind of scrapping around. And the uh, the uh, the guy who was the concert reviewer didn't want to drive to Lakeland, which is an hour and a half, two hours from here. There was a big concert venue there. You two started a tour there. You'd go to see uh, some of the big touring acts in Florida and would, would play Lakeland instead of coming all the way over to Tampa and St. Petersburg. I saw Earth, Wind, and Fire there when the spaceship came down. You know, I wow. saw Van Halen there. I saw I saw Queen 
with Thin Lizzy opening. So the, the deal was the guy who was doing the reviews couldn't, he's a friend of mine now and God love him, you know, uh, he couldn't be bothered to drive to Lakeland. Let's send the kid and see if he can write a concert review. So that's how I started uh, doing that sort of thing. And uh, eventually when you, you go to school and you sort of learn a bit about journalism and you get a job as I did in Gainesville for many, many years, you do have to do a broader sort of palette. You have to start writing about local dance and theater and art and all that stuff. But I was always a music guy. I got another moment to rock my world if you want to hear it. I had a friend who, who was a publicist with, uh, I knew her at Capital EMI, strangely enough, Beatles days. You know, you know them on the phone, but I was just this guy in Gainesville, Florida, which is Podunk, USA. But I did so much work with, you know, the bands on the label that, that you get to know the publicist after a while. She ended up going to Universal, which had just kind of, you know, it was MCA records and all that stuff, and it became Universal. This was, uh, I want to say, 1999, perhaps. Um, Cat Stevens was just sort of coming out of his Islamic sleep. You know, I mean, he still is a Muslim, and God love him, you know, but he was starting to embrace his musical past, which he hadn't in the past. And I was always a huge fan of his, uh, not so much his later stuff, but the Teeth of the Tillerman is one of my core records, you know, along with After the Gold Rush, uh, et cetera, et cetera, from that era. Anyway, I digress because I do this a lot. She says, hey, he's doing a couple of interviews just to promote the back catalog. Did you want to talk to him? I'm like, oh, sure. Yeah, okay. So here I am in Gainesville, Florida, where you know I was, I was already the arts editor, so I had a little bit of leeway, but mostly they wanted you to write about local things. Which, which was 90% of what I did anyway. But I could say, look, apropos of nothing, I'm going to do an interview with Yusuf, the former Cat Stevens, because I want to. And so I, I interviewed him, and we had, it was a nice conversation. He really is a lovely guy, I think. And uh, it ran as like the Sunday feature in the newspaper. Again, apropos of nothing. There was no show to promote. He had no local connection at all. And the story did really well. A month or two later, she calls me again and she says, hey, he really liked the story you wrote. Now, I had started at that point getting hired to do liner notes for CDs. I did a lot of greatest hits and anthologies. And because I'm kind of a music historian, you know, she says, Universal is doing a Cat Stevens box set. Four CDs covering the whole career, which he's participating in. Would you like to write the liner notes? And I'm like... Uh, yeah, you know, anyway, cut a long story short, I developed a relationship with, with the great Bill Levinson, his producer there, and did all these anthologies for everybody over the years. I think he won a Grammy for Eric Clapton Crossroads. Uh, I hooked up with Yusuf on the telephone from London. I hooked up with Alan Davis and Jerry Conway and with Paul Samuel Smith, wow. you know, the bass player from the Yardbirds, who was Cat Stevens' producer. And um, a, guy, a guy from uh, the Springfields, Mike Hurst, who produces early stuff. You know, I love my dog. and I'm going to get me a gun and all that stuff. And uh, so I did that. I did extensive interviews with all of them. And it was so cool because it was, it was like the McCartney thing. It was like full circle for me. I was able, I had Yusuf on the phone and I would say, tell me why you wrote Sad Lisa. Yeah, or tell me about uh, 
uh, Angel Say or the Boy of the Moon and Star in His Head, all these songs that had meant something to me as a little sensitive teenager, you know, back in the day. And we would talk about them. And with Paul, I would talk about the make, how the records were made and how it all came together in the studio. And that, to me, was very much like, um, like I said, a coming, coming around to paying back to, to something that had meant a lot to me. And also, it's there for future generations, if anybody cares. You know, and that box set has been out now for more than 20 years, and there's a big booklet in it. He wrote about half of it, and I wrote the other half. We did a song by song of all 80 songs in the book, where either he or Mike or Paul or one of the musicians explained the song or told me some anecdote about it. Um, and Yusuf and I worked together very closely on the timeline. Uh, subsequently, when I went to England in 2004 with my dad, uh, Yusuf and I had dinner together. Wow. Like, hey, how are you? You know, and I haven't seen him since. You know, you know how it is in the music business; those things just drift away. But uh, it was that was a proud moment for me. Excellent. I enjoyed that. Bill De Young talking about there, in fact, Cat Stevens. And uh, I've just been reading about Cat Stevens in Chris Blackwell's book. Uh, very interesting and uh, a phenomenal artist. And uh, uh, I can relate to how Bill feels about meeting him. Because stories about Paul McCartney, Linda McCartney, George Michael, uh, George Michael, George Martin, etc. And before that, Andrew Melchior, who talks about um, working with Bowie his first meeting with Mark Burgess and their collaborations and stuff, which means a lot to me because uh, I really enjoyed growing up listening to bands like the Chameleons and stuff. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed Moments That Rock, part of the Pantheon uh, group of podcasts. We'll be back very shortly with some more moments. Thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.